Well, as that video so uh, well puts it, uh, Mother's Day is a mix of emotions for a lot of different people. And uh, as I was looking through uh, some quotes just about moms this week, I had to share a few of them with you here this morning. Um, one of them says, there's no way to be a perfect mom, but a million ways to be a good one. Here's one I think a lot of you could probably relate to. Behind every great kid is a mother who's pretty sure she's screwing it up. <laughs> real moms aren't perfect, and perfect moms aren't real. And you know, there's been a lot of sermons preached on Mother's Day out of Proverbs chapter 31. In fact, I've preached on uh, that proverbial woman, and she is someone who we can look up to and aspire to be like. But often the ideal is not like the real. And uh, in Proverbs 31, beginning in verses 10 through 31, it describes this lady and she has a great family, she's got a good husband, she's compassionate, she works diligently to take care of her household. And then if that weren't enough, she's a savvy entrepreneurial businesswoman. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, who's gonna live up to that? And those are great things to aspire to. Nothing wrong with that at all. And in fact, one of the things that is mentioned there in Proverbs 31 that's one of her best attributes is her reverence and her respect for God. And so those are all good things. But what I want to talk about today is, again, the, the reality that we live in and uh, God's grace, God's grace is available for us in this real world and with all of our imperfections. So if you're here this morning or listening to this today, and you are a mom who feels imperfect, you are absolutely not alone. If you are struggling with motherhood, you are not alone. This message is to encourage you today. Um, if you've got children who are struggling, you're not alone. This message is for you today as well. And in fact, what I'd like to do is, might sound a little odd, but we're gonna begin the message today by looking at the scriptures in Matthew chapter one, beginning in verses 1 through 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's actually a list of the genealogy of Jesus. And it is showing the line of Jesus through the descendants, showing that he has a rightful, uh, a rightful place in the throne of David and the nation of Israel. So in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, but as I read this, you're going to notice some uh, interesting inclusions. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, uh, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, he goes on. We'll skip on down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. 
So notice in that whole genealogy, as it comes to the end, it makes a point of letting us know that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. Joseph was the husband of Mary, who was and is the physical mother of Jesus, but she had God as the one who worked a miracle in her body and in her womb so that God is the father of Jesus Christ and this holy one that was born through Mary was fully human and fully divine, fully God. He is unique amongst anyone who has ever existed on this earth. And that's what qualifies him to be the one that would make us right with God, that would bring us as unholy, imperfect people able to be in the presence of a holy and righteous and perfect God. So it's understandable why Matthew would mention Mary as the mother of Jesus, and she definitely needed the grace of God in her life. Can you imagine the pressure that she felt? Uh, she hadn't done anything to deserve this miracle in her life, but she was chosen by God because of His sovereign grace, and then she responded simply by faith, wanting to honor God with her life. So we could understand why she was mentioned, but what about these other four women? Because they had kind of a tawdry past, a little bit of a sordid past. So first of all, let's consider Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38, and I'm just going to give you the highlights or the lowlights or however you want to describe it, but we're just going to get a, a, an overview of what happened with Tamar. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, or the one who was renamed Israel. So of the 12 tribes, the 12 descendants of Jacob, Judah was one of them. So there was a tribe named after him, the tribe of Judah. Well, Tamar was married to Judah's first son, Ur. But before they could have any children, Ur died. In the culture of that day, what the people would do, because they wanted to make sure the family line was being carried on, if the husband of a lady died, and they didn't have any children, and the brother was to actually marry that widow, and then the brother would have a child with her so that, again, the family line could be continued on. So, Onan, Ur's brother, was given to Tamar and Tamar to him in marriage, but Onan died before they could have any children. Now, put yourself in Judah's face. He's like, place. He's like, okay, uh, Tamar had the first son, he died. Second son, he died. I've got a third son. She's bad luck. I am not, I am not, I'm not giving him to her or her to him. And so, therefore, uh, he just kind of ignored it and, and let it go on. Time passed. Judah's wife died. Tamar still had no children. She was feeling neglected and abandoned. And she got to a point of desperation. And so in her desperation, she did something that many of us would just find unthinkable. But she's like, I've got to find some way to carry on the family line. And since my father-in-law is not willing to give me any of the sons, um, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little trick on him. And so what she did is she dressed up like a prostitute. And she knew that Judah was going to go on a trip. This doesn't say much about Judah, folks. Because apparently she figured if she dressed up like a prostitute and she could trick him, that he would probably go for it. What's that say about Judah's reputation? Uh, but anyway, and, and again, you're going to hear this today. A lot of times in the Scriptures, we want to sterilize everything and make it all like, you know, oh, it's all holy and righteous, and these people, all, you know, they never did stuff like we did today. Wrong. So 
Judah goes on this trip. He hadn't seen Tamar for a long time, so it's understandable why he might not have recognized her, especially he never expected to see her alongside the road on the journey that he was taking, dressed up as a prostitute with makeup, whatever she had on. And so she propositions him. She sees Judah, she propositions him, and him being the holy, righteous father of a tribe of Israel said, no, my child, (laughs) wrong. He gave in and he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And then later she reveals to him that she is now carrying his child. Here's the thing, and and I would encourage you to read that whole story there in Genesis chapter 38, but she, out of desperation, did something that was kind of unthinkable. Now, how many of you here today, ladies, I'll speak to you first, in your life as a mom or just as a woman, have you in desperation made a decision or done something that was unthinkable. You never thought you would do, but you found yourself in a place and you were desperate, and so you made that decision. And maybe you're still suffering the consequences of that today. Here's what I want you to know, that God's grace is absolutely available to you. His grace is attainable, and His grace is abundant. And we see this in the story of Tamar because even in her desperation with what she did, she had no idea that the child that she ultimately would bear would become part of the family line that would ultimately lead to the lineage of Jesus Christ coming into the world. Well, let's think about Rahab. We find her story in Joshua chapter 2. Now, Rahab, on the other hand, she relied on prostitution to make a living. So she just totally had sold herself out, and that's how she was uh, getting by in life. So she would be considered an immoral person. Well, there were two Israeli spies who were coming into the land where Rahab lived because they were looking to take over that land that God had promised them. They were getting ready to go to war. And so as these two spies from Israel come into the land, they want it to be inconspicuous. And again, in those days and in that culture, it wasn't like they're going to go to the middle of the the town. They would have stood out very plainly to the people of that area as being foreigners. And so they had to find a place to kind of hide out. And them being the holy, righteous men that they were, they're like, sure, a house of prostitution. That sounds like a good place to hang out. And again, don't think... That when they went there, maybe it was all just innocent. We don't know. But again, God works through imperfect people. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying these things today to encourage immorality. What I'm saying today is that God's grace is in the midst of everything we do, and He wants us to turn and trust Him, and then He can lead us into a better way. But these two Israeli spies, they go into this prostitution house, and... um, As they're learning about the the land, of course, Rahab recognizes that they're foreigners, and she probably entertained a lot of foreigners. And anyway, when she found out they were from Israel, because she had heard about all that God had done for the nation of Israel, she became frightened, and she knew, oh my goodness, your God is the most high God. He's the God above the gods we worship here in this land and our religions, and so I will hide you here, and I'll help you to escape if you will promise to make sure that me and my family are not harmed when you come in and take over the land. In fact, we see this in Joshua chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, 
she's talking here about when the people uh, of, of Canaan had heard about God and the people of Israel. She says, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. This seems to be the beginning of Rahab's faith journey. She recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God, and so she was making a choice now to side in with them. And so when the people of her community came looking for these spies, because a rumor had gone through town, hey, there's some strangers, they've been checking things out, and let's find them and don't let them escape. Well, she hid them in her home, and then she misled those that were coming looking for them. And then once they went off in one direction, Rahab sent the Israelite spies in another direction. In fact, her act of faith and this beginning of her faith journey is recorded in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and it says in this way, by faith, the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab's life is an example of God's grace that is available regardless of your past, regardless of what you're involved in, and it is attainable by faith, by faith in God who gives this grace. And it is abundant and abundantly fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So that is why um, she's mentioned by name in Matthew's genealogy of the kingly line of David leading to Christ. All right, let's think about another mother, Ruth. What about her? You might think, well, Ruth, well, she wasn't an immoral person, and you're right, as far as we know anyway. But here's the thing with Ruth. She was not an Israelite. She was not from the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. She was, in, from, in their view, people from the wrong side of the track. Um, she was of an ethnicity and a culture that wasn't on par with what Israel was. And so she was a Moabite. And do you know about those Moabites? Do you know how those Moabites got started when you trace their ancestry back? They actually got started through incest. Ooh, ooh, incest. How awful. Those Moabites. And they're all alike. They're so pagan and they're so ungodly. And Ruth is one of them. Yuck. And so this was how Ruth was viewed by the Israelite people. And yet, because of a famine, because of a difficult time, people from Israel, some of them left Israel and went to the land of Moab. And in fact, there was a lady named Naomi and her husband who left with their two sons. They went to Moab, and while they were living in Moab, getting by through this time of famine, because Moab had more uh, food and, and supplies, um, the two boys married two women. Ruth was one of those women, a Moabitess. Well, after some time, we don't know exactly why, but Ruth's husband died, her brother-in-law died, and her father-in-law died. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, was so grief-stricken, you could understand it, so grief-stricken, so bitter, that Naomi said, you girls just stay here. I'm going to go back to my homeland. God is against me. This is why this has all happened. I'm a bitter woman. You find husbands here. I'm just going to go back to my people. 
And Ruth, though she was of this Moabite ethnicity and this culture, Ruth said, no, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want to go back with you to your people, and your God will be my God. There it is. She made a choice of faith to let go of her past and even people that might look down on her. She knew she was going to a place where people might look down on her, but she said, I'm going to trust the God that you trust, and I'm not going to leave you alone. And because of Ruth's faith, she realized that God's grace was available. And God's grace wasn't only available, it was attainable. And she realized once she got into Israel that his grace was abundant because of a series of circumstances that as you read in the book of Ruth, and I would again encourage you to read these stories, read these accounts, because it's evidence of God's sovereign hand and his grace for imperfect people. It was obvious that God was guiding circumstances and events in their life, and ultimately Ruth ended up getting to marry a relative of uh, Naomi's late husband. He was a wealthy man, and they were, were able to bear a child together. And so Ruth was blessed with a son. Naomi was blessed with a grandchild and with a family once again. Ruth is an example of God's grace in the midst of tragedy, um, regardless, again, of your ethnicity, your social status. God's grace is available, it's attainable, and it's abundant. Well, there's one other lady that's mentioned, and it's interesting there in the genealogy in Matthew, she's not even mentioned by name. She is just mentioned as the woman whose uh, husband, uh, or who, who had been Uriah's wife, the woman who had been Uriah's wife. And this is Bathsheba. And her story really is about the sin of King David because of his lust and committing adultery and then actually having murder committed to try to cover up that adultery. So the story of Bathsheba is really about David's sin, but did you realize that it takes two people to commit adultery? Did you realize that? I know I'm being a little silly. But here's the thing about Bathsheba. Sometimes we view her as the innocent person, and we don't know this, but if you understand culture and you understand some of the times, I don't think she was entirely innocent in this whole matter. She gave in to some moments of temptation and perhaps even wanting to better her life by getting in with the king. Second Samuel chapter 11 verses 2 through 5 says this, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. Now again, just remember the architecture of that day when homes were built, many of them did have the flat roofs because the roof was a place where they could go up in the evening and kind of cool off. It was also used as a workspace in, in, their, in their homes and with their homes. So this was a very common thing. What was uncommon was that in the culture of the day, People were very conscious about exposing themselves, especially women. They usually wore a lot of clothing, and hmm. Now Bathsheba understood where her house was in relation to the palace where the king lived. And I'm sure that Bathsheba, as she was on her roof at times, would see King David uh, out on his rooftop and saw the line of sight. So I don't think that was an accident that Bathsheba chose to get a bath on her rooftop 
uh, when she knew about the time that King David would be out walking around. So there's an implication here that there was some seduction going on. She was wanting to kind of tempt David and seduce him. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. You see, again, David is at fault here. I'm not trying to get him out of this in any way. But David also, I think, saw the signals being sent. And he's like, hmm, I think she's interested in me because she's putting on quite a show for me. And so he wanted to send some men to find out about her. She came to him and he slept with her and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So Bathsheba is an example of God's grace being available, attainable, and abundant. Are you noticing a pattern here? A theme? But Bathsheba is an example of God's grace being available for someone even who has committed an act of immorality. It wasn't their lifestyle, wasn't her lifestyle but she gave in to weakness and committed immorality, and certainly David did as well. Now, God's grace doesn't say that it's okay, but God's grace does make allowance for forgiveness, and he can bring good even out of some of our poor choices, many of our poor choices in life. He provides a way of forgiveness, and he provides a way forward for life with new purpose and meaning. And so we see that because even though the child that Bathsheba carried as a result of that adulterous act died, as, and even after David had her husband murdered in war by putting him in a precarious position where he knew that the husband would get killed because David was trying to cover up his sin, he got exposed, he confessed it to God, his sin was found out, and he bore the consequences of that, but even then God brought good out of it because later Bathsheba became pregnant with David and the son Solomon was born. And again, the line leading up to the lineage of Joseph and then Joseph adopting Christ, so to speak, as his son, even though Joseph wasn't Christ's father, he was the husband of Mary. And so therefore, through that line, the child born to Mary had every right to the throne of David. We see God's grace working through this line. So there you have it. What do we learn from these four imperfect women? That if you are an imperfect mom, if you're an imperfect woman, and for that matter, this lesson isn't just for women, it's for all of us, for guys, and it's for any of age. If you're imperfect, God's grace is available for you. And it's attainable by faith in him. And it is absolutely abundant. It is more than enough to cover your sin and to give you a new fresh start in life. So stop allowing your past sins and mistakes to control your future because that's why Christ came into the world. He came into the world and gave his life on the cross of Calvary to show his great love for you and I. And he came from that lineage, even though he was sinless because he had God as his father, he had Mary as his mother. And even though he was sinless, he came through that line to show that he loves you and he wants you to be part of his family. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness because God's grace is available, it's attainable, and it's abundant. In fact, I just want to close this message today with those three points because I don't want you to forget them, and God doesn't want you to forget them. And I want to show you some scriptures from the New Testament that affirms this. First of all, God's grace is available. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy about Christ. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You might be thinking, but Mark, death's still happening. People are still dying. That's true. But Jesus conquered death. And so through faith in him, even though we go through physical death, we know that death is not the end of the story, that we have forgiveness and grace and eternal life with him because he conquered death and his grace is, a, is available, attainable, and abundant. We can live in his presence and in that grace forevermore. And that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's available God's grace is attainable in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, talking about Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's grace is available and it is attainable because of what Christ has done for you and I. And if we will simply humble ourselves and come to Christ asking for his grace and his forgiveness and receive it, we have it because the word of God assures us. And then finally, that third point, God's grace is abundant. The Apostle John writes this in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. It says this, talking about Christ. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if you just skip down another verse to verse 16, listen to what this says. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I did a word study on that because some of the translations say we have received grace upon grace. And literally, this translation, grace in the place of grace or grace upon grace, that is the image. This is the abundance 
of God's grace. And I'm using these hand motions right now because this is the image of God's grace. We have received grace. They received grace in the Old Testament. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth, they all received grace from God. And all those imperfect, sinful men, they received grace from God, grace upon grace. And then as the New Testament came and people were born and as Christ came into the world, now there's grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace. There's new grace. Grace is fresh. It's new every day. It's like the waves of the ocean coming into the shore, one wave after another wave after another wave, grace upon grace. God's grace is available. It is attainable and it is abundant. We are living in the time of grace. And God wants you to realize that and receive it and appreciate it by faith. And again, grace is not an excuse to continue on in the ways that you have been going, but grace is an opportunity to begin to live life the way God really intended you to live it, to to be living for Him and honoring Him with your life. So respond to God's grace by faith and live to honor Him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's through Christ that he keeps pouring out his grace to you and I, grace upon grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the examples that we see um, throughout your word. And Lord, we can look around today and see examples of your grace, people who have made mistakes, committed sins, recognized the consequences of it, and yet turn to you. And because of what you provided for them and for us in Christ, they have received that forgiveness, that grace, and they're learning to walk in it. And so are we. And so today, Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone listening to this message that we would put our eyes on you and that we would give thanks that you, Lord Jesus, through your life, death, and resurrection have made the amazing grace of God available and attainable to us and it is more than abundant. Lord, we need your grace in these days. We need your grace in this time of division in our nation and sometimes within our own families and, and in the people around us. So Lord, please help us to receive that grace and to respond appropriately by faith and then, Lord, extend the grace you've given us to others that we might honor you in the way that we live. So I give you thanks and I give you praise um, for that grace that you've given us. And if there's anyone listening to this message today, Lord, who is sensing your voice, sensing your spirit speaking to them, I pray that you'd help them right now. Just just pray this prayer. Thank you, God, for your great grace in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and rising again. I don't understand it all, but I thank you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Help me live for you. Help me learn to grow 
in the grace and the knowledge of you, Lord. Help me to not be held back by the sins of my past, but help me to live in these waves of grace in a way that would honor you in the future. I can't do it without you. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to fill me, come into my life, help me live for you. Help me to be the person that you want me to be so that I can be a blessing to others for generations to come. In your name, amen.